stories to you. What does it mean to be a mother? Is it all about biology? What responsibility do we have to care for the children of others? Hello, my name is Rosemary Milsom and I'm the director of the Newcastle Writers' Festival. Welcome to this interview with American writer Sarah Centillis as part of the festival's Stories to You podcast series. I'm going to be speaking to Sarah about her new book, Stranger Care, a memoir of mothering what isn't ours. Sarah is a writer, teacher, critical theorist, scholar of religion, and author of many books, including Draw Your Weapons, which won the 2018 Penn Award for Creative Nonfiction. Before we begin, I want to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which I live and work, the Awabakal and Waramai people, and I pay my respect to elders past, present and emerging, and hello to any Aboriginal people who are listening today. One of the outcomes of the pandemic has been the move by arts organisations like ours, <coughs> excuse me, and artists to online events and presentations. And uh, I was lucky enough to meet Sarah last year in the midst of COVID restrictions when I participated in her brilliant four-day online writing retreat, Word Cave. And uh, from her home in Idaho's Wood River Valley, she guided us via Zoom, a group of Australian women all at different stages of writing, and somehow managed the time difference. And it was a really profound experience. I was also lucky enough to be in the audience at Byron Writers Festival in 2018 when Sarah visited. Remember those days where we could get on a plane? We, she was speaking about her book, Joy of Weapons, and uh, Australian academic Bernadette Brennan had this to say about that book in Australian Book Review. Joy of Weapons is one of the most erudite, original and thought-provoking books I have ever read. A philosophical and moral meditation on pain, torture and the violence of war. Part memoir, part history, even a kind of secular prayer. This book asks us to look at terrible human darkness while also celebrating the ways in which love, connectedness and the making of art nourish and redeem the human spirit. And I'm going to add, if you haven't read it, you must. And you'll also want to read her new book, Stranger Care. Sarah writes about fostering and attempting to adopt a baby through the foster care system in America. I haven't been able to stop thinking about the book since finishing it a few days ago, and I feel really privileged to have this opportunity to speak to Sarah. It's one of her first interviews about the book. I should also mention that we're going to be exploring deeply sensitive themes and issues stemming from fostering and the adoption process. So please take care if this resonates with you. Hello, Sarah. Hi, Rosemary. That was so beautiful. Thank you for that generous introduction. I'm so yes, and sorry we you. can't meet in person. but I uh... wish. <laughs> I joke that I wrote another book just so I could come back to Australia. So I don't know what's up <laughs> with these travel restrictions. <laughs> Can I take you back to 2018 when you were here in Australia? And as I mentioned, I was listening to you in the audience at Byron Writers Festival talking about Draw Your Weapons. And you said something quite profound and I, it, it lodged with me and I take notes at uh, festivals because I run a festival and often things will stick with me and I might get ideas. And I rummaged back through my notes and I found a bit of a scrawled uh, synopsis of what you said. And then I did a bit of a search because I thought maybe someone else, I know the Byron Writers Festival has student reporters uh, who are doing journalism and they cover sessions. So luckily I did find an account and a direct quote. So it's, I, you know, I don't have to try to decipher my scrawl. And <laughs> you, you, you said in that session that you wanted to move away from empathy and its attraction to that which is like ourselves. And I'm quoting here, I can identify what is like me 
But what about what is unlike me? If I'm standing next to someone who is so different to me that it makes my heart pound, can I recognise that I'm in the presence of the divine and then ask myself, how can I protect this person? I don't expect you to remember saying this, Sarah, but to me that seems like a kind of key reason why you might have begun your, you might have begun your journey with husband Eric to adopt a baby. Is that accurate, that, that sense of uh, protecting another person? That's 100% accurate. I, you know, that sentence, I think that's been my philosophy, the philosophy that calls me to, to wrestle with what it means to be human and how to live on this planet and how do we take care of one another. And at the heart of this book, Stranger Care, is that question, who do we tend, who do we not tend, and why? What counts as family? How would we live in this world if we were all related, if we believed that we were all related? So yes, very much so. That is part of what drove me to be willing to foster a child instead of giving birth to a biological child. Um, you know, originally it was my partner, Eric. He didn't want to bring another child into the world for environmental reasons, um, in part. And so I had to try to figure out, do I want to have a baby? Is that really what's important to me? Or do I want to be a parent? And eventually I determined I wanted to be a parent. That That's what mattered to me, that the the birth part, the blood part, the biology part wasn't important to me. And so um, it became to be a way to animate that idea. Uh, what does it mean to live um, a life where we're responsible for the other, especially the other that is different from us? Um, so yes, thank you for digging up that quote. I just remember it being really meaningful and I remember thinking about it quite a lot, lot, lot afterwards. And this book to me, does seem to pick up some threads uh, of your previous book, Joy Weapons, um, that notion of responsibility and and the role that we can all play, you know, within the wider world and 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 moving towards the other, and uh, and I and I think there's no other better example of that than taking on someone else's child. I also thought a lot about this book about that moment which you describe so well, where you finally get the phone call that there's a baby waiting at the hospital, a, a tiny, you know, three-day-old baby. And, you know, one thing about being pregnant is you get nine months to prepare. And I don't think there's any parenting book in the world that can prepare you for that, that, that surreal experience of suddenly having a baby in your home and in your car even, you know, a car seat in your car. How did you cope with that? Um, it, it felt like both the longest pregnancy of my life, you know, and the, the most immediate. It was like, you know, I was I was working. Um, we got a phone call. I was I, I ignored my phone. We got a phone call on my cell phone. I got a phone call on the landline. I ignored it. I was working with a writing client. And so I, I just couldn't be bothered with it. Eric came to my office door looking kind of gray, like something's happening. I ignored him too. Um, and then finally, we, we got this call from a social worker who said there was a three-day baby, three-day-old baby girl and could we come get her? And, and we said, yes. We got that phone call at 11 and we had to drive basically an hour and 45 minutes. So we had a baby by 2 p.m. So we went from not being parents to being foster parents in the span of three hours. It was quite extraordinary. As you mentioned, it had been a long gestation, you know, the notion of, of having a baby in the process that you both went through. And your account of it is extraordinary. Uh, I mean, you know, what, what, what came 
what came sort of to the fore for me was the inadequacies of the system, the, the process, the perseverance one needs to just stay strong, you know, to navigate the, the, the interviews, the, um, you know, the, I suppose the scrutiny of you, how you live, and then also the ups and downs because when we should say you, you, you had ended up fostering a little baby called Coco, but prior to that you'd had sort of almost false alarms, hadn't you? The, the phone would ring and you and Eric had been clear about the sort of child you wanted. You wanted a, a, a newborn baby, only one, um, and yet desperation, I, I imagine, forces the service to call you. Can you take siblings? Can you take a toddler who's very badly, um, had been badly neglected and had developmental issues? And I, it's a kind of torture, isn't it? An emotional torture for you to turn down those children. It was, it was um, uh, just devastating for me to say no to in the face of such desperate need. It made me ask myself, who am I? You know, what kind of human being am I? You know, as you quoted in that Draw Your Weapons quote when I was talking about that book and that I, I built my academic work is the foundation of it is this idea that we're called to take care of the suffering of, of people in pain, that, that something is demanded of us. And so we would get these phone calls and we had been trained to have a list of questions by the phone. We've been trained to um, be clear about what our limits are and what we're capable of um, doing and who we thought we'd be good parents for. Um, and we would get these calls that were totally different than what we had said we were prepared for. Sibling set of three, sibling set of five, you know, a child with, with severe um, developmental needs. And um, it was so devastating for me to say no to those children. And I don't mean to, to turn their suffering back and make it, say it was hard on me, but it was hard on me in terms of what kind of person am I? Am I not who I thought I was? Um, but it also helped me remember that there are other people answering those calls too. You know, the little, the little um, child that you refer to who had been severely neglected, um, someone did say yes to that child and someone was way better prepared to handle uh, that child and to help that child thrive and recover. And that child actually has a happy, happy ending. So it's also letting go of that idea that it's only me, you know, that savior complex. It's only, I'm the only one who could answer this call. Um, but it also revealed the ways, different ways that Eric and I see the world. You know, he, we see the world similarly up to a certain point, which is that the world is made and it could be unmade and remade to be more just and life-giving for the most vulnerable among us. Um, Eric thinks human beings will never change the world in that way, that we aren't capable of it as a species. And I think we might. Um, so our saying no, when we would say no, that kind of confirmed Eric's view of humanity as flawed and failed. Um, but for me to say no, it went against my hope for humanity, which is that we will care for one another, we will tend one another. Um, so that was hard hard as well to try to navigate that mm. you, you have the support of family and friends who know you're going through this process and it is an arduous process and you're also you know you have moments of doubt and um one of the sort of key protagonists or, or people you, you you mention in the book quite a lot um at various times particularly when you you feel unnerved or 
unsure is your therapist (laughs) and um and i and i think that um she's so profound i mean she says quite extraordinary things at times and it helps you navigate this really complicated emotional terrain and i wondered if i could ask you to read uh just i should mention that sarah's book is is um is divided up into quite small segments and um and so it's it's quite a, it ends up leading to this really compelling narrative and i might talk to sarah a bit later on about the structure of the book but yes sarah if you could read when you least expect it which i think yeah. sort of highlights those moments of doubt you had when you least expect it i went to see our therapist who is now just my therapist week after week and in between visits the question do i want to have a baby ran through my mind until one day the question shifted. Do I want to be a parent? Adoption began to feel like a viable option, and I wondered why I'd never considered it before. Why make a new child when there are already so many children who need homes? A different version of motherhood, of parenthood, became visible to me. It was not dependent on pregnancy or genes. It suggested we all might belong to one another, might be responsible for one another. But I was still afraid. What if I couldn't love a child I didn't give birth to? What if the child arrived traumatized beyond repair? My friend, Mylin, came to visit and led me through a writing exercise. She told me to write for 10 minutes without stopping, without lifting the pen from the page. She lit a candle and set a timer. I wrote and wrote, and in those words, I heard a voice. The voice was mine and also not mine. The words came from me, yet surprised me. It was the voice of myself as an old woman, wise and strong and clear. A child will come when you least expect it, and you will recognize them, she said. The hair on my arms stood. Open your heart, she said. We are waiting for you. It's beautiful. And then you have Coco at home. <laughs> what was that like? What were those first few days like? And, and how did you come to love her? Oh, I loved her immediately the moment I laid eyes on her. She was, um, she was a very small. Uh, she, was under, she was under five pounds. She was very small. And uh, we walked into the hospital and there was a nurse who was holding her and feeding her. And I, I just loved her right away. And she placed her in my arms and it, it was immediate. She, um, you know, I knew that she wasn't mine um, in the same way that no children are ours. All, all children are mysterious beings that don't, um, you know, that that we can't lay claim to, even whether we give birth to them or find them in some other way. So I knew, I knew she wasn't mine, but I also knew that we belonged to each other. And that was immediate. I, I did not expect my love for her to be as immediate as it was. And I didn't expect it to be as fierce as it was. It was, it was fierce um, and protective and, and beautiful and just surreal. You know, there's this, we didn't have a baby, then all of a sudden we have a baby and She's tiny and we're strapping her into her car seat and we're, um, you know, we, we had to drive back home and I sat in the back seat and she just held onto my, my finger for, for all the way home. My name's Rosemary Milsom and you're listening to the Newcastle Writers Festival podcast series, Stories to You. My guest is Sarah Centillis.
there's no finite timeline with fostering, is there? You um, you don't know when you might have to give this child back. And the core aim of the foster service in the state where you are is to reunite children, uh, reunite children with their biological parents or family, and that might end up being a, a, another relative as such. Mm-hmm. But you know that from the beginning. And I and it seems to me that to, to even be able to take Coco in, you sort of have to push that knowledge to the side. But it but it's always there, like sort of over your shoulder, you know, mm-hmm. when will I possibly have to give her back? Uh, you have to go to court it's 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 an ongoing process. Her mother, her biological mother, turns up to those court appearances and she has a program that she has to follow in an effort to have her baby returned to her. Mm-hmm. And she has other children that don't live with her. And she seems determined to make this work. And I feel like some of the most honest bits and the and the heartbreaking bits of the book are when you reveal your desire for her to fail in a way, because if she succeeds you'll have to hand Coco back, but, but yet you want her to succeed. It's this this tug of war, this emotional tug of war you live with. And I, I, I've never thought about that, that conflict that you have to live with. Yeah, my um, Coco's biological mother's name is Evelyn. That's what I call her in the book. And she, my relationship with her is the most profound relationship I've ever had with any human and the most heartbreaking all at once. Um, and I did, I did in the beginning, I, I didn't want her to succeed. I wanted her to fail because I wanted to keep Coco. I wanted her <laughs> to be our forever child. Um, and I'd been led to believe by the foster care system that that was what was going to happen. They had called her a poor prognosis. They had said there were no other relatives. Um, they had, they had assured us in some ways that adoption was uh, was a likely outcome. Um, so I was, I was rooting against Evelyn. I didn't, I didn't want her to meet the goals that have been set by her and by the system. Um, and you mentioned my therapist, um, who, whose name is Juliana and she pretty much gave me a profound (laughs) talking to, uh, kind of a slap across the face over and over and over again. Um, and basically she said, uh, that I had to turn my heart, you know, 180 degrees around. And I, instead of um, hoping that she would fail, I had to start hoping t- that she would succeed uh, this human being who was exhibiting the desire to get her child back. Um, and that I had to start championing her and that to love Coco was to love Evelyn. Um, and that I had been living under the assumption that my life was more important than her life, uh, but that actually my life didn't matter more than her life. Um, and in fact, this baby might save Evelyn's life and I didn't need my life saved. Um, so that was d- this really profound turning point um, in, in my life and in these questions of who I hold myself accountable to. And you mentioned this idea of the stranger or the other, you know, I had assumed that the stranger would be Coco, this baby that was not biologically related to to me, but loving her was easy. Um, The stranger that I was called to love and the stranger I was called to protect at all costs, even at the cost of losing this baby that I love, uh, was Evelyn. And um, I'm really grateful for that, that learning.
Mm. And I think, um, I, I mean, I didn't know much about fostering and I didn't uh, appreciate that you have to have ongoing contact with the, with Evelyn, biological mother. There's, a, there's visits each week. There's court appearances. Those visits get more frequent as she moves through this sort of program of uh, almost um, obstacles she has to overcome to move to that next step of, of having her baby returned. So you're seeing her a lot. You're going to mm-hmm. cafes a lot. You know, you're handing her over in car parks, this baby that has become so pivotal to you. And as you mentioned, in a sense, she's the stranger. You know, you're having to time and time again hand this baby you've come to love so deeply to a stranger and in a, in a way, getting to know that stranger and a, a, a accommodating that stranger makes that process easier. Mm-hmm. It, it made it easier and, and more challenging all at once. You know, I think um, everything, I think I write about this in Stranger Care, you know, everything in our lives had had been designed to keep us apart. You know, we weren't supposed to like each other let alone love each other, like difference in education, struggles with addiction, difference in family, difference in um, economic situation, difference in um, experiences of violence. You know, at one point she's doing so much driving back and forth between our two towns. I asked her like, what podcast do you listen to? And she said, what's a podcast? You know, and I was like, my God, we live in utterly different worlds. And yet we loved the same baby. And so mm-hmm. we're, we're, in it together forever. We we love the same child, and so what does that what does that mean, and what does that show that's possible about um, connecting? Mm. Can we we've talked uh, a lot about you focused on you, but can we mention Eric because <laughs> he's your husband, obviously. And it, it's it, you in the beginning of the book. It's interesting because you write that you had always imagined you would be a mother, and you know you marry, you meet um, a divinity school you know you're training to be um you say school we would say college or university probably Mm -hmm. um and you're training to be an episcopal minister and you know being a parent seems to be something that was a given in, in for you but things shift when you marry and eric decides um you know he that he doesn't want to have children he he has a vasectomy Something changes in you, though, doesn't it? You, 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 in a sense, have agreed to compromise your desire to be a mother, uh, but then something dramatically shifts. And I'm interested in how you both navigated that 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 period, but also, um, you know, became parents together. Mm-hmm. It was um, a we had a, a radical remaking of our marriage. I would say, you know, I I um, I deferred a lot to Eric. Um, I don't think he knew that that's what I was doing. I think he, he thought he was married to a strong, radical, badass feminist. <laughs> but in reality, you know, I was, I was deferring a lot. I, I have long struggled to name my own desires and to fight for them. And so when someone else wants something different than what I do, I usually um, acquiesce uh, without even saying that that's what's going on. So with the kid thing, I had my own, I had my own fears about, about becoming a parent. Yes, I wanted to be a mother. It was something I wanted my whole life. And I also was afraid of it. You know, I thought it would, it would ruin my writing. I thought it might ruin my, my, uh, you know, the life that I had constructed for myself. So there were some doubts of my own, but I really let Eric's doubt and fear take over. And so I agreed, okay, fine. We won't have biological kids. And anyway, how am I going to argue? I really want to 
have a baby when my partner is saying having a baby will destroy the earth. You know, it's kind of hard. It's like the biggest setup possible for someone who has a difficulty, has difficulties saying what she wants. Um, but it, it wouldn't, it wouldn't leave me. You know, I said, okay, okay, we can adopt. I'm okay with that. Um, uh, and then, and then we had difference in the opinions about what age we would adopt and whether we would go through the foster care system. So the process of, of fighting um, to become a mother and to become a mother to a baby, admitting that that was my deepest longing, um, actually also required remaking the dynamics of our partnership and becoming more equal partners. And our, our marriage is stronger for it. It's more real. Our communication is better, but, but it took a long time. Um, and then um, Eric ultimately said he would follow my lead, that the biggest decisions we've made um, I've been the leader of them and they're often the decisions that people say, oh, that's a bad idea. <laughs> you're going to mess up your life. Um, you're going to ruin your career, but they end up working out. And so he was willing to trust me. Um, and one of the most beautiful parts of this story is Eric discovering he really wants to be a dad. Yes. And I might ask you to do a second reading if that's okay, because again, it's another short little episode in this narrative and uh, it centers on Eric and I thought it would be really nice to highlight that. Sure, thank you. Love, what did you feel when you held her for the first time? Eric asked me that night. Love, I said, but what did it feel like? He asked, I can't explain it, I said. Did you have an overwhelming need to protect her? He asked, what? For me, it was visceral, primal, he said. I felt, if you come at her, I will fuck you up. We use the word vulnerable to describe susceptibility to attack or disease, to highlight our precarity. But vulnerable, from the Latin noun vulnus, wound, and verb vulnerare, to wound, used to mean both capable of being physically wounded and having the power to wound. That second meaning, the ability to cause harm to others, has fallen out of popular usage, but it was exactly what Eric understood when he held Coco for the first time. He knew in his bones how defenseless she was, how exposed, and he also knew he'd do anything to shelter her. It was like all the indifference and harm in the universe collapsed onto the being I was holding. And all I wanted to do was protect it, protect her, he said. I've never felt that before. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's, it's such a beautiful book, Sarah. There's so many moments like that. Uh, can I talk to you about that structure? And uh, it, it is very different it's fragmentary i mean it includes juxtapositions and it segues about art nature religion and it does give the book a compelling power because you know you have these fragment fragments or an episode from the, your real account of the process and uh, you know to to have a baby and some of the sections are no more than four pages some are one like the short readings you've just done why did you choose that narrative structure um, I chose it for a bunch of different reasons. The main is that this is this is the most intimate personal book I've I've ever written, um, and 
it has a very specific story, you know, the story of becoming a mother to this foster foster daughter. But I wanted to open it up to the wider world. I wanted to take the lens from the particular and, and open it up. And so how I did that was to look at all the ways in the world, uh, beings and objects and trees and plants and whales are related, how they, how they participate in stranger care, how they take care of the other. Um, so I wanted to say, this isn't just a human story. This is a planet story. This is about what it means to live on this earth, to share this earth with other living beings, animate and inanimate. Um, so I wanted the lens to be wide. So that's why I uh, moved from the particularities of this story about Coco to the, to the wider world. I'm also a huge fan of juxtaposition. <laughs> that's how I wrote Draw Your Weapons. I mm -hmm. like to put things side by side that we tend to keep separate. I think um, racism and sexism and oppressions of all kinds depend on these discrete boxes we put one another in or, or we're put in um, and that we're trained not to, not to connect the dots. Um, and I want to help people connect the dots. So I like to put things side by side to see how, how ideas might be enlivened by proximity, through proximity. I also like white space. I think it's um, a way to give the reader a breath. I think it's an invitation to the reader to animate the text on her own, to, to make her own conclusions about what's happening. Um, and I'm a huge fan of the fragment. You know, I like, I like small writing. I think that, um, we hear information in fragments and we're asked to, um, make sense of it. Um, and so I wanted, I wanted all those things. I wanted fragments. I wanted juxtaposition. I wanted white space. And then I wanted that, that narrow focus that opens out into the, into the universal. And, and that's what it does. I mean, it, it is, as you said, that particular the particular story of you and Eric and this beautiful little girl called Coco and I suppose the people around that, um, you know, her mother and the, the workers who you have to deal with within the system who oversee the process. You write, and I think this is really interesting in terms of looking, you know, to the bigger picture sort of ethically, um, you write that, um, and I'm quoting here, I'd imagined foster care is somehow ethically cleaner than private adoptions or fertility treatments but it became more complicated and I became more complicit by the day. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. Um, I had, I had told myself or sold myself a, a pretty um, deceptive story about what it, what it would mean to take care of a foster child. You know, I think I thought in some warped way that it was um, the most ethical choice to do. Um, but being part of it, I, I started to realize uh, these are these are children taken by force from their parents, um, and they're taken by force because the parents are struggling with poverty, or they're struggling with addiction, or they're struggling with mental health, or they're struggling with um, you know all kinds of things. Um, so by the time that a child enters the foster care system, all of our systems have failed. We all of our all of our support systems have failed. I mean, you said at the beginning, like, um, can I love a child that isn't, isn't mine? You know, I think what the foster care system showed me is that all of these children are all of ours. They belong to us. We're responsible for all of these children. Um, so I think that I just realized that uh, the foster care system is, is the symptom of all of these other oppressive structural systems and to think that I was doing a good kind of in quotes clean in quotes ethical thing um, just became more and more complicated especially because I wanted to keep 
Coco. And the goal of the foster care system is reunification, um, whether that's in the best interest of the child or not. Yeah, I have to admit, as a reader, it is really tough having, you know, because you're such a sharp-eyed observer and, and we're taken into the process of foster care. You know, we, we go to the meetings you have, the interviews you have, and, you know, we also meet the, the people who work within this broken system. And, and as you write, they seem, I mean, they're harried, they seem traumatised themselves, I mean, to even exist day-to-day working within this system and, and having to take children from this, you know, confronting situation and place them with strangers, um, having to just sort of work within it does damage. Yes, I, I started to understand the social workers as traumatized people who didn't understand themselves as traumatized. Um, you know, they're in this massively under-resourced public system. They see the worst that we do to one another every day, the worst that we do to children every day. That's their life. You know, I, I talked about the trauma of answering those phone calls and saying no. I was hearing a singular story about a singular child. That's their daily, their daily work. And so in order to survive, there's some ways that they have to shut those parts of themselves off, that emotional part. Um, but as a result, the people who stay there, they're either tremendous warriors and the most incredible human beings you could ever ask to inter- interact with, or, or they're not. <laughs> they're the opposite of that. You know? And, and um, their goal is to clear their desk, to lower their caseload. Um, and to do what the state has asked them to do, which is to protect the constitutional rights of biological parents. Yes, I mean, I wonder too if there can ever be change, the fundamental changes that need to happen. It's such a big ask, isn't it? I think there's lots of things, there's lots of ways that the system could change. I mean, one of the things that I find so distressing is that um, these these parents are, are wrapped, they have wraparound social services when their children are in foster care. But at least in Idaho, once the child is returned, all those services disappear. Well, that seems like ridiculous. <laughs> you know, why would you give people support when they don't have the child, but when they have the child, there's no support. Um, I think there could be cleaner, cleaner areas of or clearer um, dividing lines between the different, the different parts of the foster care system. They're supposed to remain separate and advocate for different uh, parts of it. So there's supposed to be someone advocating for the child's best interest, someone advocating for the parents, Um, but really they they really collude and kind of work together um, and and do whatever seems um, the path of least resistance. So there's lots of changes. There's lots of people advocating for change, but on some level, by the time you get there, so much has happened. We have to start way upriver um, if we want to if we want to change things. You know, in the in the United States, we don't have we have pro family rhetoric, but we don't have pro family policies. So that that would be one key way to to radically transform the foster care system. Mm. When I think about parenting, uh, and I suppose in terms of you know whatever shape that that takes, I think of it as an opportunity for growth. And I wondered how this experience has changed you. Um, that question makes me want to cry because um, I'm so intensely grateful for the ways that it has changed me. I think uh, Coco has been the biggest teacher of my life. Um, and all I want to do is protect her. And sometimes I'm not able to or allowed to. All I want to do is mother her. And, and sometimes I'm not able or allowed to mother her. Um, I think it's changed me. My relationship with Evelyn um, changed me 
in exactly the way that that quote that you read at the beginning, um, what does it mean to protect the other at all costs, especially the other who scares you? Um, and I, it's shown me that I want to be a mother, that it, it is indeed my deepest desire and I love it. And it doesn't make, it doesn't ruin my writing. In fact, I think it made me a better writer. Um, and it's made me feel uh, kinship with, with every being. If I can love this stranger the way I love Coco, if I can want to tend that stranger the way I wanted to tend Coco, then I can also tend refugee, I can tend river, I can tend um, community, I can tend school, I can tend world. I think one of the problems about the way we've we framed parenthood as about biology, you know, a lot of parents will say, I'd never felt the love like I felt when I held my child for the first time. And they mean that this biological child, I think that's confused us. It's actually not about biology or about um, blood relationship. It's, it's the universe saying to you here, take care of this. Because um, I felt that exact same feeling with Coco and, and I know I can feel it um, for every other being on this planet too. Thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you. This has been such a gift to talk with you. Sarah's book, Stranger Care, is published by text. You can visit her website for information about upcoming writing retreats and workshops. Thank you for listening to our conversation and each Wednesday a new episode will be available if you'd like to keep up to date with Festival News, you can follow us on Facebook. And a reminder that the 2021 event will be held from September 24 to 26. Take care. Stories to you.